Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Hi, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On. We're a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 13 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, I'm Leela Randall. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African American world of news and local events of interest, <clears throat> all in the next hour on Bring It On. And But first, before we get started, I'd like to tell our listening audience that today's topic involves some very sensitive matters and may be a little bit too sensitive for younger ears or for those who are a little uncomfortable talking about uh, uh, sexual violence, uh, abuse, and domestic abuse. So if you fall in that category, by all means, exercise your right at this time to adjust your radio dial. I didn't say permanently, but for the next hour, we're going to talk about some delicate things. Just want to give you a fair warning. And on that note, but first, since 1971, Middleway House has been providing services to people in crisis. Today, they provide supportive and empowering services for survivors of domestic abuse, sexual violence, stalking, and human trafficking, such as emergency shelter, a 24-7 help and crisis line, on-scene advocacy, transitional and permanent housing solutions, legal advocacy, support groups, personal advocacy, child care and youth programs, and educational and prevention programs. Middleway House serves six counties in southern Indiana and relies on a staff of 70 and a volunteer force of 300 plus to provide services. It is not necessary that an individual reside in our emergency shelter or transitional housing program to access most of their services. Middleway House provides equality of services and care to all survivors without regard to ethnicity, religion, national origin, age, gender, affectional orientational, disability, or income. And we have invited a couple of staff members from Middleway House to discuss the services they provide along with the special programming that previously occurred last month in April, which was designated as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Throughout the month of April, programs were offered to raise public awareness about sexual violence and to educate communities on how to prevent it. And with that, here with us are Middleway House Community Outreach Coordinator, uh, Sarah Hunt, and the Director of Middleway, Deborah Morrow. Uh, Sarah and Deborah, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you for inviting us. This is a very important topic and we appreciate you addressing it. Yes, thank you very much. Well, we are so uh, fortunate to have you on. I know that the month of April was extremely busy and while April has come and passed, we are dedicated to airing and having discussions on these type of topics. I'm not sure if you caught a couple programs that Bringing On uh, aired uh, on trafficking. And we brought uh, together uh, um, those uh, movers and shakers and agency heads and and those in law enforcement who uh, work to prevent and to reverse and to expose that type of uh, crime against not only women, but but everyone. Uh, So we wanted to continue that discussion uh, today. Again, it's a very delicate topic, but we don't... don't, um, 
push away from those subjects that may make us a little uneasy. Sometimes we need to have those, those difficult conversations. So with that, can you share with us the history of Middleway uh, from the standpoint of where you come and, and all that's gone on? Uh, Deborah, you're now in a new role as director, and uh, can you sort of acquaint yourself with the community? Yeah, my name is Deborah Morrow, as you said, and I've been with Middleway House for a little over eight years. Mm -hmm. Um, I started as the community service coordinator. Um, I have always been very impressed with the work that Middleway House does in domestic violence and sexual assault, and we're just working really hard now to bring more awareness to sexual assault, understanding the damage that that does to a community. And uh, if, um, Sarah, if you can chime in a little bit with um, your perspective on the history of Middleway since 1971. I, I'm not saying yeah. you've been there. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to, to intimate anything, but uh, share with us the history of uh, Middleway from your perspective. Well, certainly Middleway House has grown significantly over the years. We were in the small yellow house for many, That's many right. years. And then Middleway broke ground on the Rise, which is a 28-unit transitional housing program for people that have experienced relationship violence or sexual violence, where they can stay for up to two years. And then, of course, now we have our new wings facility, which houses our administrative offices and our legal advocacy team, um, as well as our emergency shelter. Oh. Uh, uh, Deborah, you have something to add to that. Yeah, one of my favorite stories about Middleway House's beginning is we started out as a crisis line in a venereal disease uh, resource center where people could get information. And one of my favorite things about it is it was totally volunteer-driven, and folks that volunteered there, many of them were chemistry students and had a huge interest in drugs on not using them but researching them and when people would call our crisis line one of the things that they would allow them to do it was 1971 and people were using a lot of illegal drugs and they would allow people to bring their drugs to them they would test them find out what it was that was in those drugs and give them back to the people with information and education about what the drugs were what they would do to them if they took them And I so compare that to our philosophy now, because now we're we're an agency that works on empowerment and we allow people to bring their stuff to us. It's not drugs anymore. We don't want anybody's drugs, (laughs) but they bring their stuff to us, their situations in their life. And we look at it, examine it, and give it back to them with resources and information about what their options are, be it a situation with domestic violence or sexual assault. But we leave all the choices to them on how they proceed in handling their situation. But being able to give them those resources and the information is so valuable. So you said you had 28 housing units, an emergency shelter, and there was something else that you had. We we have oh, oh you the administrative buildings. Okay. Yeah. So what what type of people are in each of these facilities, uh, barring the administrative areas? So we have six tr- six permanent housing, okay. and those are for individuals who have experienced domestic violence um, that don't have children. Maybe they their children are grown, or maybe they've never had children. Our transitional housing. Um, 
shelters individuals for up to two years who have children who have experienced intimate partner violence and um, there's a lot of supportive services there such as they they all are assigned an advocate we've got a community room on site our youth program is there we've got our child care for them and a lot of services that they need and want um, all of the services are client driven what what services people participate in are the ones that they feel that they need and want and it just gives them a huge opportunity to rebuild their lives which is great and I I never hide the fact that I was a former client there and I went through our services at the rise went back to school got a job and was be able to rebuild my life and I am just one person and all across the community there are individuals who have used our services. Our emergency shelter, those are people who are fleeing crisis. And, um, you know, maybe they'll need our transitional housing, maybe not. But we want to put people in the best place that they are, what's best for them, by having all of these different resources available to them that they can access. Let me ask you, as far as the clientele um, that you may typically say, well, then again, abuse knows no um, constant um, demographic uh, uh, um, situation, but uh, for those that are, say, living right now transitionally at the um, um, Shalom House, do at the you, rise at the rise? Yeah, that's that's our transitional housing. Well, well, that's yours, but um, oh. the Shalom House, which is proximity-wise close to you, yeah. do you see some of their clients come over? Are there protocols that you use in that situation? I always think of. And in, in every mor morning, there's this sort of dynamic in Bloomington where people are seen with, with all their belongings on with, mm. on a, with a backpack or a shopping cart migrating somewhere. That's and hard. many of them are women who appear to be single, mm -hmm. and my heart goes out to them because they appear to be very vulnerable. And I'm curious... Uh, is there some type of correlation with all this? Well, there's a lot of intersection between homelessness and domestic abuse. Now, um, all of the clients that live in the rise are low-income individuals. What we find is if there is somebody that's more affluent that ends up in shelter, they have other resources, maybe to go, their sister lives in another state, they're going to move there or mm -hmm. something like that. So all of our clients at the rise are low-income. Now, for individuals, we have served in our shelter and in the rise individuals who are experiencing homelessness and domestic abuse for our shelter people have to be immediately fleeing and so sometimes homeless individuals do end up in our shelter because they're homeless and experiencing domestic violence and we want to make sure that we serve anybody who's needing our help um and in the rise um Folks that are living there are actually still considered homeless while they're living there. Uh, with the McKinney-Vento Act that allows, and this is absolutely wonderful, kids who are living in our transitional housing program, they can continue on at the school that they originated from because they're considered homeless, and the McKinney-Vento Act allows for the school to come and transport them to their school of origin. Mm -hmm. And so within Monroe County and Richland Bean Blossom, we have kids at the rise who have attended all of those schools. And you service your service area is six county? Yes, and we have outreach offices in Owen, Green, and Martin counties. 
Um, and and I'm and I'm have one more burning sort of burning question because the talk now is about opioid addiction and talk mm-hmm. is about all types of addictions and um, with the increased use and abuse of opioids, is there a correlation with the levels and numbers of those who appear at your doorstep? And we have to be honest and say yes. I mean, we have individuals who self-medicate um, to make the pain and go away from the abuse and maybe the drugs were prescribed due to legitimate pain. Our late director, Toby Strout, shared with me the story of a former client who had been, years ago, she had been shot by her abuser and was given opiates while she healed. And he went to prison and she ended up addicted. And when he got out of prison, he filed for custody of the children and won them due to her addiction issue. So um, it, it breaks my heart. I continue to do a support group in the jail for women who have experienced domestic violence, and a lot of them have addiction issues. Um, and that is oftentimes in talking to them, you can see the direct relation to the domestic violence and sexual violence that they've experienced. And so, of course, we do run into that. Our our shelter and our transitional housing are drug-free spaces, but we do know that people struggle with that. And we try to work with them and get them the resources and the help that they need. And to add what to what Deborah was just saying, we know in terms of people, women especially who are incarcerated, on a national level, around 80% of them have experienced domestic or sexual violence and that that played a direct role in their incarceration. Um, and locally, when Deborah did an informal poll with the support group, that turned out to be about 90% of our female population that's in the Monroe County Jail. So another activity that Middleway House engages in on a monthly basis is gathering together with other local agencies like All Options Pregnancy Resource Center and Bloomington Pride and New Leaf, New Life, and Midwest Pages to Prisoners. And we, with Middleway House, we join together and write letters to incarcerated survivors, letters of support, letting them know that someone is out there. And on Mother's Day, we held a vigil outside of the Monroe County Jail to let them know that we still supported, we love and support all mothers. And we know that 80% of incarcerated women are mothers and that that has a devastating outcome for children in the long haul. Oftentimes, the fact that they have addiction problems contributes to them continuing to be abused physically or sexually because they won't reach out for help from the police because maybe they're using. And... There are times that I run into women whose partners have prostituted them out, which is a form of human trafficking, as a way to support the abuser's drug habit. But they also want to keep that woman who's experiencing abuse under the influence of drugs, too, so they have more control over them. Because if you're high, you're not going to call the police when you're being hit because you're afraid of going to jail yourself. You mentioned the children. What are some of the support services that you provide to the children? Uh, We have wonderful support programs. We have a 
licensed child care, level four child care, um, with the pathways to quality, we not only just want to provide babysitting, we want to provide quality child care that folks can count on so they can go back to work or go to the doctor. Um, and understanding that our staff understands how trauma impacts children, which is huge. We also have an, an extensive youth program that serves kids age 3 to 18. Every day there's after-school tutoring. We know that kids who come from homes with domestic violence are often up to two years behind in school because how can they sit in class and pay attention when there's all this fighting that went on at home the night before and they're worried about it? Or how can they study for a spelling test while that they're sitting in the middle of that chaos? So we use a lot of volunteers every day after school. There's tutoring time and every child we want to see them matched with an adult during that tutoring time where they can start building relationships. So if somebody volunteers on Tuesdays, we want them with the same child every Tuesday so they can start building that trust and those relationships. We also have a lot of other programming. They might be writing groups, cooking groups, there's been drumming circles. Whatever volunteers bring to the table, we definitely make use of it. And it's really impactful because it allows the kids, like I said, we use a lot of college students, so it starts giving these kids hope for their future of, wow, maybe I could go to college too. Um, we. In the summer, we continue with the educational component so that they don't get behind in school. So they have their reading and math groups. And if they participate in that, they get to go swimming. Um, spring break, we know that our families aren't going on vacation for spring break. So we try to make that really special for the kids with a lot of science type activities like going to the Children's Museum, going to the zoo, uh, the feline rescue center and just trying to bring them opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have and allow them to build relationships. What I have seen from that program is that these kids bond and the experiences they've had because domestic violence is one of the biggest family secrets and you're taught to keep it a secret but when you move somewhere and you understand that the kids around you and it makes me emotional have experienced the same thing you have that there's this bonding that happens that creates these lifelong friendships that are so valuable. So it's, I, I think it's beautiful what happens with the kids in our programs. And I love that the community helps and supports so much with that. It makes a difference. If you've just joined us on Bring It On, we're having a rather sensitive but yet um, a needful conversation on the services provided by Middleway House and some of the wonderful things they do to help those who are in great need. Uh, joining us tonight, we have uh, Outreach Community Outreach Coordinator Sarah Hunt, and we're privileged to have the director of Middleway, uh, Deborah Morrow, here. And uh, we'll journey on now with some of the questions that we have. Let, let's talk about the intake process. Um, and I have a dear friend who works at Middleway House. I shared that with you earlier. I've known her for years. And sometimes when she seemingly is carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders and uh, when she uh, perhaps just just doesn't go into detail but just needs to just sort of vent something, just and, and we listen and we're supportive. But she sometimes describes, say, an intake process and um, just how emotional – 
uh, that is. And now we're talking about women, uh, more than likely, um, and the age can vary. I mean, we're talking young women to, what, age 14, 13, 14, 15, or could that be a possibility? If we are seeing somebody that young that's experienced abuse as mandatory reporters we would have to report it okay uh, it might be a child there with their parent and maybe it's already been reported mm-hmm. but they appear at your doorstep mm-hmm. uh, seeking safe haven mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they come in and, and they are taken into a secure space mm-hmm. to not necessarily in low but just to begin a dialogue to one let them know that they're safe to let them know that nothing you are about to share or express will shock, well, shock us, although you may try to keep a poker face. But mm-hmm. but then from there, you try to not so much deconstruct, but just try to assess so that you can make the best um, either referral or provide the best services right away. And then, God forbid, their children in tow with this individual, uh, and then you have to care for them. Can you explain to us... Um, some of the situations that you probably can share uh, on the air, I mean, without names or whatever, but how extreme can this be? People right now are sitting probably down with their families not knowing that uh, there's some suffering going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to be very cautious with confidentiality, so the best thing that I can say is the worst horror stories you've heard on the news, those are the kind of people that we get in our shelter. Um, And for some of these folks that come in, I have to give so much credit to all our advocates who do the intakes. Mm -hmm. For these people, when they come in, this may be the first time that they've shared their story. And this may be 20 years of abuse. And generational in nature. Absolutely. And to... For our advocates who sit and listen to these stories so patiently and so dedicated... It, it's amazing, but they, they do because they understand how important it is for these individuals to get to share their story and to be believed. And that's probably the most important thing because so many times an abuser, be it somebody who's abusing somebody sexually or physically, they're telling them, no one's going to believe you or you deserve this. And so that is one of the first big jobs of the advocates is to let them know, we believe you. We're sorry this happened to you. And to let them know it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's especially can be very powerful to thank them for telling you the story. Because when you think about it, how much courage it takes for somebody to come and reach out for help with all those obstacles, all those obstacles of not knowing what's going to happen when you reach out for help not knowing if you're going to be believed, all of these things, and yet they still trust you and share their story. And I think it's okay to thank them for doing that. And um, you have exceptional legal advocacy, and you have experts that work with you, both Mm -hmm. on staff and with the the prosecutor's office, and they bring weight to uh, whatever needs to be uh, addressed. Mm -hmm. Um, Your partnership with prosecutor's office and other elements within the um, judicial system Um, what can you say about that do you I would love for Sarah to talk about the protective order assistance project with our legal advocacy and because I am so proud of that program and how many individuals it serves each year do you want 
I our legal our legal advocacy team in the building is is phenomenal as well, and I think that it's really important for people to know that we're more than just a shelter. Anyone can access who has experienced domestic violence, sexual violence, or human trafficking, stalking, things of those nature of, of intimate partner violence. Anyone can access our legal advocacy team. It's not necessary to be in shelter or to be utilizing our services in any other way. In fact, last year we served 833 survivors and 95% of those that came to our legal advocacy services were not residents in shelter. So, and they can assist with filing for divorce. They can assist with helping file for a protective order with questions related to child custody and visitation and things of that nature, as well as giving, you know, um, advice about housing. For example, there's a law that allows survivors of violence if it is in their best interest and they have a safety plan that's been signed by a legal advocate in an accredited shelter, they're able to get out of their lease, which is a huge benefit, as well as having their locks changed within a reasonable amount of time if they have an active protective order. Our legal advocacy team also partners with the Protective Order Assistance Partnership, which is a joint partnership between the Office of the Monroe County Clerk, Middleway House, the Prosecutor's Office Victims Assistance Team, the IU Mauer School of Law's Protective Order Project, the Monroe County Clerk's Office, and the Prosecutor's Office. And that is housed within the Clerk's Office. So it used to be people would come in, be handed a packet of paperwork if they were seeking a protective order, and told, fill this out. If you had questions, they had to tell you, I'm so sorry, we're not allowed to provide you with any legal advice. People had no idea how to navigate that process, as well as they didn't know some of the things they needed to know about the process and um, in to order to even determine whether it was a safe option for them. Um, for example, when someone comes in and fills out the paperwork for a protective order, their abuser, if it's granted, is served a copy of that. And so they're going to see everything that's written. So it's really important to safety plan around that process as well. And so important for uh, that program to have access to our legal advocates to help attend court hearings through that process as well as to come um, and just have a sense of safety planning and be referred to shelter if that's an appropriate option for them. One of our legal advocates through a grant that was procured through um, the Protective Order Assistance Partnership is employed full time in that office. So it really is a very unique project and allows a great opportunity for someone to be able to liaise with all of our services from right there within a county office to make sure that they're getting access. Okay, one of the programs that we listed earlier, there are, there are a few of them. Um, one of them is um, your prevention programs. So how do you help someone transition back into what I guess we would consider normalcy, but what would be some of the preventive services that you have for um, these people? Um, so our advocates, once somebody is working with um, our staff, our advocates kind of help them 
work themselves back into society. But our prevention programs are more geared at educating to prevent violence in the first place. So a huge component of that, we do a lot of uh, presentations in the community, but a huge component is the presentations that we do in the middle schools and high schools. And going in there with our Building Healthy Relationships program makes a huge difference in and for kids on uh, kids learning to understand what domestic violence and sexual mm-hmm. assault is and intimate partner violence um, the sad thing is it actually really needs to be done at younger ages because one of the things our prevention coordinator who is absolutely spectacular when they go into the middle schools there's already stories to be told and they always make sure that they take an on-scene advocate with them who is available to talk to a youth who's experienced domestic violence in the home, sexual assault. Um, so I'm really proud of that program. Through the Community Foundation, we got a grant to hire a part-time person to work on curriculum for our younger kids. and. We've done some community programming and social service organizations for younger kids. Um, I know last year as a part of Pride at the library, we had a program for um, kids and their caretakers, which was well attended because people want to know how to end violence. And we consistently work on that. And if there's one area, we can keep doing this crisis work forever. I would rather do more prevention work now and less crisis work later. That would be our ultimate goal. Uh, we've probably all seen movies that Hollywood's produced along these lines, and there's one that stars Jennifer Lopez. Um, I forget the name of it, but she fights back. Mm-hmm. And uh, But first she had a flight plan where she left, and there wasn't, say, a middle way there, probably in her community, but she, she fled. Mm-hmm. And sort of regrouped. Um, And it wasn't that she was thinking of me. She wasn't thinking of pepper spray or a stun gun. She was going the full 10 yards and thinking of perhaps a handgun. Um, Are any of those things um, things that you might, um, in some cases, recommend? I know that that's a very delicate subject, but we're talking of protection. You know, it is an option, of course, that individuals have. My big fear is when you think about somebody that is experiencing trauma and hypervigilance, is it more dangerous for there to be a gun in the home? Because oftentimes, if there's a gun in a home, it might be the victim who ends up murdered. And so to me, that's a fear. Um, If individuals are informed it is always their choice on what measures they take to protect themselves but we are going to educate them on statistics that you know it might be more dangerous to have a gun Mm -hmm. in the home if your abuser if you feel your abuser is capable of killing you and uh, we have about three minutes left um, we have not talked about the month of April, and uh, we probably want to bring you, you ladies back for that. But in the time we have remaining, if, if we can encapsulate some of the wonderful things you did in the month of April, and then uh, a little bit as in the future as far as what you want to 
achieve at Middleway. I may ask the engineer to grant us an additional minute or two. But if you could talk about your wish list, what the community can do for you. You've done so much for the community, but what can we do for you? So let's talk about the month of April. So um, April is always Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and this year's theme was Embrace Your Voice. And so we did several events. We had a Consent 101 workshop at the library that was organized by some of our interns. And that just kind of helped people understand essentially what consent looks like, because we talk about it all the time, but we know that it's a little bit more fluid in actual practice. I think from experience in life, we all know we may have a plan, but then when you get into these things, they look a little bit different. But if you're talking about these things and planning for them in advance, you can be a bit more prepared. Um, We also had a couple of Me Too panels. So we had a Me Too panel discussion that kind of discussed this movement that we're seeing and the trend. And it was a moderated panel that explored the complexities of the movement and where we'd kind of like it to go. And our panelists included uh, Jada B, who's a co-facilitator for Black Lives Matter, um, also Janae Cummings, a Bloomington Pride leader, as well as Alexandria Hollett, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Gender Studies, and Allison Solomon, a PhD student and associate instructor in critical feminist human geography. That was a moderated panel and was really, I think, informative because it did talk a lot about people at the margins and their experience. We then had a workshop called Your Friend Just Caused Harm, What Next? And I think that was really important because we know most people are not sexually assaulted by strangers, but by people they already know. And that means that we might know people who are also perpetrators. And how do we react? Because we oftentimes react in a strange way where we say, oh, no, they couldn't have done this. Mm -hmm. But we really need to be more prepared to have those difficult conversations as well. And um, we also had a concert collecting anchors that kind of explored things in that manner. Uh, We had hosted a luncheon where the Honorable Valerie Houghton spoke and shared her own um, experiences within the Me Too movement. And uh, so it was a very busy month in addition to trying to educate people in the community through Facebook and things of that nature. In terms of a wish list... I think Deborah's probably got a pretty long one, but and we'll, and we'll let that be the, the last word for this segment. Or my my engineers granting us an additional few minutes here. So my biggest wish for the community is that we all work together to learn how we can prevent and help prevent violence. I think that that is huge. Um, I wish, as all of us do, I wish we didn't have to do this work, and through everybody working together someday this work won't have to be done that's my ultimate wish but while we are still here just continue to support the work that we do um i really want to see our prevention efforts grow because i see that as a big game changer in this work that we do um I want to work very hard to make sure that the marginalized communities, those who may not reach out for help, know that we'll help them without judgment. For some people who may think we don't understand, you don't understand where I'm coming from, or I don't deserve help, 
I really want to break down those barriers and make sure that everybody knows that we are there to help them, no matter your gender, your life situation, your experience. Domestic violence and sexual assault are damaging things that hurt people for a really long time. And knowing that they can receive support and help. Um, one of the most recent things that Middleway House did was started an incest support group, which that's a topic a lot of people don't talk about. We found out that was <coughs> the first support group in Indiana that serves survivors of incest. And realizing that those folks didn't quite feel like they fit in a regular sexual assault support group because their situation was unique and finding those niches that we need to fill to help everybody feel like they're supported. That's my ultimate goal. To support all survivors. Yes. And as we transition away, um, we're coming into that time of the year where there are a lot of outdoor celebrations, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, on and on. Uh, you see things in public sometimes that just don't resonate and just greet you a certain way. And um, rather than you take initiative to intervene, uh, do we call 911 on our cell? You know, everyone has a cell phone. What do we do? Do we videotape? Do we call 911? Or is that a conversation I need to invite you back to have? <laughs> I think that could be a very important part, too, because there's <laughs> yes. very valid reasons that many people might not reach out to law enforcement. Um, obviously, many people that that is the best thing to do. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly if you see someone who's in a life-threatening situation, but for some people, that may place them at much greater okay. danger all the way around. So because we need to educate then our listening public. Uh, I come from a generation and others where, you know, the manly thing to do is to go over and intervene, but that may not be the wise thing to do. We want you to be safe, but at the same <clears> time, if you see something and you call the police and it wasn't enough for the police to really react on or the police don't see anything to react on, then what could happen when that survivor goes home with that abuser? They may be like, if you wouldn't have yelled, the police wouldn't have gotten called. And then that victim might really be put in a bad situation. So this could be a big topic conversation. Well, we I, may want to have another I, day. I want to take producer privilege and invite you back. Um, we have actually a planning meeting tomorrow. And, uh, sir, I might be giving you a call. <laughs> I look very forward <laughs> okay. to that. Well, our thanks to Middleway House Community Outreach Coordinator Sarah Hunt and the director of Middleway House, Deborah Morrow, for joining us to discuss the services they provide, along with the special programming that previously occurred last month in April, which is designated as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Again, the email address is bringiton at wfhb.org.
Support for WFHB comes from Russian Recording. Russian Recording is a full-service analog and digital recording studio in downtown Bloomington that has contributed to more than a thousand records since 2003. The studio provides recording, mixing, and mastering services. More information online at RussianRecording.com. 
M from Morrison's Appliances and Service at 900 West Kirkwood Avenue. Morrison's, serving Bloomington since 1950. More information online at morrisonsappliancesandservice.com. You just heard You Are Not Alone by Mavis Staples from the I'll Take You There project. Back in the day, huh? Yeah, back in the the day. day. Uh, But to keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB news website at WFHB.org slash news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. From For Bring It On, I'm Leela Randall. And I'm Clarence Boone. And and Leela, I I know you probably stayed up, got up early on Saturday, probably at 4 o'clock in the morning to see (laughs) coaches and carriages and horses and long white gowns and... Means of people screaming and hollering. Well, not well. Not, well, it was it was bigger well, than, well, than somebody's inaugural. But anyway, I'd like to say that I did that, but I'm a highlight girl. <laughs> so um, <laughs> when the little blurps come on uh, during my Facebook feed, or um, I think I got up a little later, and I think they did a rerun of several, it on ABC. So uh, I'm kind of a highlight girl when it comes to things like that. I just don't have the patience to sit through that long or to get up that early. Well, I was awakened by the sounds coming from the TV, and uh, I'm not going to say who was up that early, but anyway. Clarence has a wife. Oh, yeah. A photo of (laughs) Meghan Markle posing outside Buckingham Palace uh, two decades before the royal wedding has resurfaced. Now, this was two decades before she got married. And people are just all, ag- all aghast by it. The insider reports that people online are, are just totally tripping out over a vintage photo of Meghan Markle posing outside of Buckingham Palace, and it resurfaced during the royal wedding. Saturday morning, Twitter user Lucy Simpy posted the old picture of Markle next to one of her and Prince Harry in St. George's Chapel. One day you're 15 and posing outside Buckingham Palace, and 22 years later you're marrying the prince, Simpy tweeted along with the photos. Unreal. The vintage shot of Markle, which was apparently taken when she was 15 years of age, appeared on the cover of the Daily Daily Mail in 2017. In the picture, Markle, now 36, can be uh, seen sitting on a fence in a casual black dress and sandals, posing next to a friend like any tourist might do. Markle and Prince Harry tied the knot Saturday morning after exchanging modern vows and heart-melting looks. And after hearing wonderful singing from choirs and empowering sermons from preachers, the actors turned royal, now officially the Duchess of Sussex, stunned in a Givenchy gown during the wedding. Givenchy. See, you can tell he's a male. Okay. Givenchy. Givenchy. Oh, Givenchy. Well, it was a beautiful gown during the wedding ceremony (laughs) at St. George's Chapel. Markle later changed into a modern, go ahead, what was it? Stella McCartney. Stella McCartney dress. Not the other McCartney actress, but Stella McCartney. Okay, Stella McCartney dress for the couple's intimate evening reception at Frogmore House in which they wrote in a vintage. 
support. Okay. Well, I'm sure some of our listeners even have, they have another picture of Megan when she was very young saying or pretending to be like she was going to be a princess wow. one day. So okay. um, you listeners out there, I'm sure you've even heard that little um, bit of, I don't think it's folklore, but history about Megan. So I guess that then the, the mantra is if you put it out there, yeah. it will happen. Well, we have time for one more story. One more story. Okay. Oh, this is the one I heard on the way here. Barack and Michelle Obama signed Netflix production deal. Variety Magazine reports that Netflix has secured a deal with President Barack Obama. Yes, you do. Yes. And oh, former, yeah. later, former lady Michelle Obama to produce series and movies for the streaming service. They also said documentaries. The former first couple will, according to the announcement Monday from the company, potentially work on scripted and unscripted series as well as docu-series, documentary films, and features. One of the simple joys of our time in public service was getting to meet so many fascinating people from all walks of life and to help them share their experiences with a wider audience, said President Obama. That's why Michelle and I are so excited to partner with Netflix. We hope to cultivate and curate the talent, inspiring, creative voices who are able to promote greater empathy and understanding between people and help them share their stories with the entire world. Barack and I have always believed in the power of storytelling to inspire us, to make us think differently about the world around us, and to help us open our minds and hearts to others, said Michelle Obama. Netflix's unparalleled service is a natural fit for the kinds of stories we want to share, and we look forward to starting this exciting new partnership. Word of a possible pact between the former U.S. President and First Lady surfaced in March when the New York Times first reported that the couple walk was in talks with the streaming service on a deal to produce several high-profile projects. Barack and Michelle Obama are among the world's most respected and highly recognized public figures and are uniquely positioned to discover and highlight stories of people who make a difference in their communities and strive to change the world for the better, said Netflix Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos. We are incredibly proud that they have chosen to make Netflix the home of for their formidable storytelling abilities. Well, it, it's no surprise, and it seems to me maybe um, Michelle Obama in 2020. I thought that very okay, seriously. She likes her privacy, and I don't blame her either. That was a look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to, want to know what you think of current black issues. Send your comments to bringiton at wfhb.org. For Bring It On, I'm Leela Randall. 2028. Uh, and I'm Clarence Boone. You're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org.
of my bag I went looking for a place to hide When I saw Carmen and the devil walking side by side I said, hey, Carmen, come on, let's go downtown She said, I gotta go, but my friend can't stick around now You just heard The Wait by Mavis Staples from the I'll Take You There project. And it's now time to bring you the events of interest in the black community. For Bring It On, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Leela Randall. First up is National Gun Violence Day. I guess this is very appropriate. National Gun Violence Day is the weekend of June 1st through the 3rd. On June 1st, local activists from Moms Demand Action are inviting the Bloomington community to be a part of the Wear Orange campaign to raise awareness for the 96 Americans who die from gun-related injuries each day. Wear Orange Day was started in response to gun-related deaths in Chicago and spread nationally. The Bloomington members of Moms Demand Action are planning to honor this day with an orange meetup on June 1st on the courtyard yawn, courthouse lawn from 2 to 12 to 2 p.m. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, birthday commission meeting is Wednesday, May 23rd from 4.30 to 5.30 at the City um, Hall McClowski Conference Room, number 135. The Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Birthday Celebration Commission seeks to promote and celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday and promote the acceptance of diversity in the community. The commission sponsors events and programs to commemorate the annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Jr. Federal Holiday, include a volunteer service day initiative, a day on, a, not a day off, 40 Days of Peace, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Legacy Award, and the annual community-wide Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Birthday Celebration. The commission also sponsors events throughout the year which promote justice, racial harmony, and equal opportunity. And one of Bloomington's uh, other commissions, the Bloomington Commission on the Status of Black Males, wants to acknowledge the 2018 graduates. Uh, Graduation is a special time of life that marks the transition from one goal in life to another. A graduation is a significant period of life to celebrate. And so the City of Bloomington Commission on the Status of Black Males would like to recognize black males that will graduate in 2018. Uh, the, The commission will publish the names and photographs of 2018 graduates in a special section of the July online newsletter. Now, to submit information on a graduate, on a graduate, rather, please visit https colon backslash backslash bloomington.in.gov backslash csbm and then click on the 2018 graduate recognition towel. Again, uh, https colon double backslash 
or double forward slash rather uh, backslash help me Leela bloomington.in.gov backslash CSBM. All submissions must be received by June 21st. So we'll be talking about this in upcoming shows. And for questions, contact uh, 812-349-3559. Again, 812-349-3559. Or email safeandcivil at bloomington.in.gov. Again, safeandcivil at bloomington.in.gov. See, listen, that's, that's why I gave Clarence that one. I know. Okay. I know. I know. You can handle it. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional info about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringingon at wfhb.org. Our thanks to Middleway House Community Outreach Coordinator Sarah Hunt and Director Deborah Moreau for joining us to discuss the services they provide, along with the special programming that previously occurred last month in April, which is designated as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And our show's producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, with help from the WFHB News Department Director, Wes Martin. And our expert board engineer for the night is Chris Martin. Our original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Leela Randall. Tune in next Monday, May 28th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.